This is Race Capital with Chelsea Higgs-Wise and Kat Maudlin-Jackson, where we interrogate racial narratives in our place, space, and time of Richmond, Virginia, the former capital of the Confederacy. I'm from the R, the I, the C, the H, the N, the O, the N, the D. That's my self-teaching. The R, the I, the C, the H, the N, the O, the N, the D. That's my self-teaching. This week on Race Capital... We have Dr. Erica Armstrong Dunbar. Dr. Dunbar has earned her stripes with an MA and PhD from Columbia University. Her writing, teaching, and lecturing focuses on uncomfortable concepts of slavery, racial injustice, and gender inequality. While there is deep pain associated with these topics, Dr. Dunbar marvels at the incredible triumph of survival and the beautiful history of resistance. She became a historian of the African-American experience, and she has committed herself to telling the stories of black women who lived, loved, struggled, worked, prayed, and fought to survive in a nation that still recognized many of them as property. She became the national director of the Association of Black Women Historians, the ABWH, which is dedicated to four organizational goals to establish a network among the membership to promote black women in the profession, to disseminate information about opportunities in the field, and to make suggestions concerning research topics and repositories. Her first book, A Fragile Freedom, African-American Women and Emancipation in the Antebellum City, was published by Yale University Press in 2008. Her second book, Never Caught, The Washington's Relentless Pursuit of Their Runaway Slave, Ona Judge, was a 2017 finalist for the National Book Award in Nonfiction and a winner of the 2018 Frederick Douglass Book Award. We are so excited to have Dr. Erica Armstrong Dunbar with us today. Stay tuned for this exciting interview. Okay, Dr. Erica Armstrong Dunbar, thank you so much for joining us on Race Capital this morning. Thank you for having me. Um, Dr. Dunbar, we were so excited to see your success with your latest work um, of Harriet, but we'd really love for you to tell our listeners a little bit about your previous work and some of your writing um, about fragile freedom and really just your work of amplifying the stories of black women. Yeah, no, I'm happy, happy to do this. I feel like I'm a, I'm a fortunate person, a fortunate scholar, and then I get to mm-hmm. read and write about the things that matter the most to me. Mm-hmm. Uh, and to do that every day. Um, and when I was in graduate school, I actually went to graduate school um, thinking that I was going to write. Uh, I always knew that I was going to focus on the lives of, of enslaved and free women. But I sort of thought it was going to be a, a civil war and then a, a reconstruction story, kind of what were lives like for, for black women following the war. And I just kind of was, um, I don't know, I was left cold by that. I, I wanted to to go earlier into the archives and to think about what it meant for um, enslaved and free women to who lived and and loved and survived in this place they called home, the United States, and, and before mm-hmm. them, um, how they survived, and what what did freedom mean to women who lived um, in a in a nation that still recognized slavery, 
Mm-hmm. And so I spent really the early years of my career digging through really difficult archives, archives that, you know, for anyone who does um, the history of enslaved people, the history of mm-hmm. people of color, of women, we know that these are often places, archives that don't tell our stories, that tell the stories mm-hmm. through the lens of other people. So it's really, it takes a lot of time to sift through records and to tease out the the truths, the, li- the lives of Um, the people who were disregarded in these places. So that's what um, I've really been able to to dedicate myself to over the past 20 years is telling those stories and including those stories in a narrative. Right. And and thank you for bringing up your experience with the archives. Uh, Race Capital last year did a project with uh, Virginia State University students going through uh, yearbooks and finding narratives rooted in race. And what a lot of the archivists um, talked to us about was reading against the grain and finding what was missing and who was missing in those stories and then digging deeper, just because a lot of the times our stories just were not included. Um, this was a different way of, of reading and finding our history that was so important to learn. Exactly. It's, um, you know, <laughs> one would argue that this is, uh, it, it's a little more difficult um, for those mm-hmm. of us who choose, who our subjects are those who, for the most part, were either forbidden from reading and writing um, mm. or were not, did not have access to education for one reason or another. Um, those are the folks whose stories are, um, you know, I won't say that they're um, erased from the archives or that they're um, buried. I, I always like to think of, of these stories, the lives of these people, as um, sort of simply waiting to be found and that mm. it's our job as as historians, as archivists, as writers um, to unearth these stories and to weave them into the larger narrative of American history. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Exactly, exactly. So tell us about how you chose to really focus your writing on um, the couple of books that you have put out and talk a little bit about those publications. Sure. I am... Um... My first book, which was uh, basically it was the, the the work of my dissertation, um, and it's a book called A Fragile Freedom. It's mm-hmm. about how black women became free in the North. Mm-hmm. And really the, the sort of, it's a colonial, early republic, antebellum era book. And I decided I wanted to write that book because when I was in graduate school, I was looking for that book, like, okay, where's the Mm. book about how northern black women became free? You know, the sort of myth that, of course, slavery didn't exist in the north. Well, of course, we know that wasn't true. We know that slavery existed in all of the colonies, all of the northern colonies. And I kept looking, okay, where's the book that talks about black women who lived north of Delaware? It really didn't exist. Right. And, you know, that's a that's a moment where as a historian, as a writer, you're like, wow, yay, hooray, I have something, you know, to write that is going <laughs> to be a significant contribution. But then there's also that moment of, like, dread and fear, like, well, if, how come nobody's done this before? Um, right. And also, you know, sometimes being told, well, you're probably not going to have the source material in order to write the book. Um, mm. and for me, that. You know, when I'm challenged in that way, um, 
that actually works as incentive for me. For others, it can, you know, and, and I, I think this is an important point because for others, it can squash a dream or right. perhaps for me it was more of an incentive um, to to know, to write the work that I knew could be written um, but mm-hmm. just would take time. So I published that book um, in 2008 with Yale University Press, and it was really the first book to to talk about the lives of, of black women in the North mm-hmm. who straddle um, the world of, of slavery and freedom. And while I was um, writing that book or finishing that book, I was in the archive and I um, was trying to sort of figure out what's everyday what's everyday life like for people in Philadelphia. The book really sort of focuses on Philly, on New York, on these kind of mm-hmm. usual places where we have larger collections of black people um, mm-hmm. in the North. And so I did what most historians and scholars do when you want to find out kind of everyday life. You go to the newspaper. Right. And so I pulled up some newspapers in the 1790s, and I'm reading through them, you know, what what are people selling? What are the the yeah. political issues of the day? Mm-hmm. And I'm reading through the newspaper, and I come across, it's the, the Philadelphia Gazette, and I come across a runaway slave advertisement. And it kind of stopped me in my tracks, in part because it was a, it was a 1796 issue. And I thought, okay, that's odd. In Philadelphia, slavery is kind of just about gone. Right. Advertising for a slave. Uh And what is this uproar went away? And, you know, the advertisement read something like, absconded from the household of the President of the United States. Oh. And I, exactly, that was my, oh, was my, so like, okay, and then I do the the mental math, like, okay, 1796, that's George Washington, who I know is living in Philadelphia in 1796. And I thought, okay, who's run away from George Washington? (laughs) And I read further, and it was a moment of um, excitement and confusion and, um, they said her name. When we, when we talk mm-hmm. so much about say her name, you know, here right. she was in the advertisement, um, and they called her Oni Judge. Um, mm. And they, they described her, and they said Oni Judge, and they described her as mulatto and that she had uh, absconded from the household and mm. uh, that there was, um, you know, there was a desire to get her back. And at that moment, I thought, okay, this is really exciting. I'm finishing up this first book, and I'm, okay, yeah. I have something that I know that interests me and might be a second project. But yeah. I also felt kind of simultaneously, like, angry. I thought, yeah. here I am, supposedly a specialist in, you know, early African-American women's history, and mm-hmm. I don't know that story. And I'm also a Philadelphian, right? Ooh, and, right. and I'm like, okay. I don't really know this story, and I want to know why. And mm. it was really from that moment on, and I think this is the case for, for many historians, that we find our second and our third and our fourth projects from the projects we're working on prior, right right before. Right, um, right. And that sort of led me on a, a nine-year journey of mm. uncovering the life of, of Ona Dutch. Wow, nine years. 
nine years. Well, thank you for your work to, to tell her story because um, you're also really well known for your work with Harriet and congratulations um, with that story. And um, I, I'm really excited for that piece because we have such a public memory of her name. Um, but right now with Ona Judge, that's just not a name that triggers any, any type of memory or recognition in people's names. So it makes sense that you had to do the nine years of work to really tell this full story. Um, and you've been telling her story since what, 2017 now? Yeah, that's uh, it published in February of, of 2017. So, mm-hmm. um, yeah, we've had several years of um, people, in 2017, nobody, very few people knew her name. People who, right. some Philadelphians and then mm-hmm. some folks in New Hampshire where she mm-hmm. eventually spent the majority of her life. Um, but it's very different, you know, writing a book about someone who is unknown versus someone who has become iconic. Right. You know, it's a very different process. And and also I had a very different um, goal in writing both books. With the Harriet book, that was my goal in writing that book was to think about um, Harriet Tubman through a more modern or contemporary lens and also to do it in a way that centered the experiences of black women uh, writ large. And so for yeah. me, it was taking, and I, I believe I'm, I'm the only black woman historian to ever write on Harriet. Um, we have Amy's mm. work, of course, um, and we have a, a long list of, actually not so long list, but a significant list of scholars who've written really good um, biographical work on, on Harriet. And so it really wasn't, um, it, it wasn't my goal to, to fashion a book about Harriet the way I had done so with Ona. I wanted to make mm-hmm. a contribution, but in a different way. With Ona's right. Story. It was really um, introducing a woman who people didn't know, but that her story, aside from telling her kind of amazing life, that mm-hmm. her story sort of served as this portal into mm-hmm. the world and lives of our, quote, founding fathers, mm-hmm. and that it allowed us to understand the history of the founding of the nation, not through the eyes of George or Martha Washington, but mm-hmm. through the eyes of their enslaved person. Wow. And that's the way, as a historian, yeah. that's the way I try to kind of upend mythic um, mm-hmm. narratives. And, right. um, you know, we have other uh, historians and scholars who've done similar kinds of work. I think we see that with, clearly with Annette Gordon-Reed's work mm-hmm. on um, Sally Hemings and Thomas Jefferson or the Hemings uh, as a family. But um, that was one of the things I really uh, sort of immediately thought I could do by telling the story of Ona Judge. Yeah, yeah. And, and thank you for that perspective as a grassroots organizer and really – trying to um, dismantle the, the lies that we've told and, and have conditioned in our mind. It's important for me to, I myself with historians that are doing this type of work, because our initial reaction is to go and to talk about the people, the oppressors, the people that were really causing the harm and showing their true colors and, 
and look at them. But truly, the most impactful way of storytelling for us to feel the impact of those behaviors is to tell the stories of those that was truly impacting, like Ona Judge. And that's the powerful way that we can move people to understand what was happening in our past, as well as recognizing that we need to look at the people that are impacted today to really, really, truly see what's going on in our current world as well. Mm, yeah, um, yeah. I think that with with Never Caught, with, with Ona's story, I think that narratives change depending upon who is centered in mm, the narrative. Exactly. And with Ona's, it was very important for me to write this book about um, this period in time with two iconic people, with George and Martha Washington, mm-hmm. not as centered subjects, but in right. any ways they were peripheral, right. and that it was Ona's life, and to remember that Ona had a life that was, yes, she was technically and legally controlled um, under the law, by the law, mm-hmm. she was enslaved, mm-hmm. but that um, the Washingtons were not a, were not um, a part of every um, branch and um, tentacle of her life. And so I wanted to be able to tell a story about this woman who survived, um, <laughs> survived in right. who knew her family members, who became one of the most visible enslaved people, I argue, in mm. the 18th century, people who knew the Washingtons, they knew Ona Judge. She right. was in, in close proximity at all times. And mm. um, I wanted to, to to sort of rethink that narrative by putting her front and center. And so the, the wonderful thing that's happened is that when I began, um, you know, a book tour in 2017, very few people knew who she was. And now right. I, I think that's, that needle has moved a bit. I think people know her name, and it's not just adults, but also yep. um, young young readers as well. Right, right. Well, I I have to be totally transparent, and but what you're doing with centering black stories and but still telling a very full integrated story, and uh, you said change the narrative, but I will uh, lift Christy Coleman here as a historian. Um, and she's actually just leaving us here in Richmond from the Civil War Museum, but she has really been pushing us to say correcting the narrative. Um, and the way that you do that in your work, and specifically with Harriet, that was a, a big conversation we had here in Richmond with grassroots organizers, is just the powerful way that that came across to feel like we were so seen in that movie. Um, but yet we were still able to recognize players of everyone else without being centered. And it was just so beautifully done. And it was also the way that we can now hold storytelling accountable of that this is possible. You can do this and tell the full story, but still center us. Um, And and people want to, they want to see films like this. They want to read books like this. And for such a long time, both, in the publish in the world of publishing and in Hollywood, there have been significant um, gatekeepers hurdles mm-hmm. to get the stories of Black people in particular um, to large reading or viewing audiences. That they're just right. the hurdles. They were, you know, yeah. there's the thought that oh, that kind of movie or that kind of book 
won't sell well. And um, I think that that's been proven inaccurate. Yeah, yeah. Well, um, and that was, people were really asking me about my reaction to the the movie Harriet, but also to the story about Ona Judge. And so much of it is just me saying, I just feel seen. I just feel seen. I've never felt that before. And and that representation is just incredibly powerful. Um, and, And so just being able to have a real vulnerable moment with you for a second, it's just, a big thank you from so many of us that are just working for that. And it's been a long week uh, and month here in Virginia. We're here in general assembly sessions, so but many of us are still trying to do current work and, and, and lifting these narratives of history as, as we do that. But I, I just a big thank you for that. And I don't want to give too much away because I really want people to uh, pick up your book, Never Caught the Washington's Relentless Pursuit of Their Runaway Slave, Ona Judge. But I'd love for you to tell our listeners um, a brief uh, version of the story of Miss Judge. Sure. Um, well, you know, spoiler alert, the book is called Never Caught, so uh, <laughs> I know. No, what's going to happen? And I did have to actually, you know, convince my um, publisher to uh, let me keep the title Never Caught. Um, Mm -hmm. I, you know, began this project and um, I worked with the title Never Caught. And because, of course, it's the story of uh, an enslaved woman who escaped the Washingtons and uh, they were unable to, to reclaim her. And, you know, at first, some folks in marketing were a little uncomfortable with the title because they thought, well, you're giving away the story. And mm. um, I was like, well, you know, we have other examples of what, you know, 12 years a slave. He was going to be a slave. Yeah. We know that, exactly. right? It was a narrative from a different time, <laughs> but um, it didn't stop people from reading it. And But, right. but I think what was important for me was – I wanted from the outset for people to realize that, yes, Ona um, was a fugitive and she ran away, but she was never free. She remained a fugitive for the entirety of her life. So it Mm -hmm. wasn't a simple story about, quote, slavery and freedom, that she Mm -hmm. was simply never caught. And it was a, a reminder that even for people like Ona, as well as for for Harriet um, Mm -hmm. Tubman, that these women were fugitives and spent, um, for Ona at least, she spent the entirety of her life once she escaped the Washingtons um, as as a fugitive. Ona was born sometime around 1773-74. We don't have an exact birth date, but we Mm -hmm. know that she's born right at the sort of beginning of um, what we would call the sort of revolutionary era and I think this Mm -hmm. is important when we think about the time in which she um, grew up she was the daughter of an enslaved woman named Betty who was a seamstress and a sewer and technically Betty was owned by Martha Washington so that meant that Ona was also owned by Martha not Mm -hmm. by George Washington and so when you look at the archive Mm -hmm. you look at the list of enslaved people George Washington kept a very detailed list of which enslaved people were owned by Martha and who was owned by, by George. So that's, we know that's that really, she had, go ahead, go ahead. That's really interesting. Um, and just to 
taking in your mind as a historian for a second, like many people see married couples as a unit. And so uh, speaking about Ona, they could say, well, that was George Washington that did that. But is, was that pretty standard of keeping those lists very separate for like married couples in power of who owns which enslaved people? Well, I think in cases like the Washingtons, it was mm-hmm. typical because, as as we know, George and Martha, Martha was um, married once before George, and mm-hmm. her husband died and left her a widow and left the estate really basically in her hands, but to be divided among her heirs once she was deceased. So this was an estate that was not given over to George Washington. He, as her husband, was responsible for the execution of that estate, of managing Mm. that estate, but it was never his in terms of property. So it was important to keep who's who and what's what very separate because upon both of their deaths, different things happened to their human property based Mm -hmm. upon law and will and what have you. So actually, Martha Washington was the larger uh, slaveholder among the two. You know, I I often say that uh, when, when George Washington married Martha Washington, he basically, my, as my grandmother would say, he, he came up. Like he, <laughs> he married into more money and wealth than he had himself. And Marcus, so, I let me upgrade you. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> well, that's sort of what happened. And, um, you know, Ona is a kind of direct, her story also reminds us, allows us to get at the story of lineage of the law of enslavement and this specific founding family who mm-hmm. owned who and what and when. And so her her mother was Betty. She was enslaved. She came with Martha Washington to Mount Vernon when she married George Washington. Okay. And okay. eventually um, Ona was born. Her father was a white indentured servant named mm-hmm. Andrew Judge. And so the fact that we even have a last name, a surname for Ona, ties mm-hmm. us to the only person at Mount Vernon with the last name of Judge. It was Andrew. He was a a, a tailor. Um, he would eventually work his time off and, and leave Mount Vernon. And at some time around the age of 10 or 11, Ona was basically sent up to the main house, the mansion house, to learn to be, do the domestic work that her mother did. She was a sewer and a seamstress, and um, at some point she becomes Martha Washington's sort of chosen one. I still don't have a, a title for that responsibility, mm-hmm. but she becomes her chosen enslaved person. And because of that, it, you know, it meant that she was responsible for the most intimate of, mm-hmm. of chores, helping her bathe, helping her brush her hair, those kinds right. of things. And because of that designation, when George Washington was elected um, unanimously as the first president of the United States and there was a relocation to New York, the nation's first capital, um, Ona Judge was one of seven enslaved people that were taken to New York Mm -hmm. by the Washingtons, um, two women, five men. And um, as a teenager, basically, she is taken to New York. The nation's capital relocates to Philadelphia, and she would spend the next six or so years in Pennsylvania mm-hmm. with the Washingtons um, coming of age. And this is important, once again.
again, the sort of larger narrative I'm talking about is how black people saw slavery and freedom during this age when conversations about freedom and democracy are kind of on the table yeah. of everyone following a war yeah. and um, what did it mean for, for someone like Ona to come of age in Philadelphia where um, the Constitutional Convention happened and where um, the Declaration was read aloud and, you know, how did it impact her? And one of the ways that clearly it did was, I think, by prompting her to, to rethink her life with yeah. the Washingtons as right. an enslaved person. And right. it was during her time in Philadelphia, she found out that she was going to be given away as a wedding gift to mm. Martha Washington's granddaughter. And, and that was the trigger that um, really led her to, to flee the Washingtons. Wow. Wow. Okay. Well, and how old is Ona at this point? Give us. Yeah, so she mm-hmm. she runs off in May of 1796. Mm-hmm. So she's still, you know, a relatively young person. She's in her 20s, mm-hmm. um, 22, 23. Mm-hmm. And so you know, when we think about a 22-year-old enslaved, illiterate black woman who chooses mm-hmm. to defy the most powerful man and woman in the nation mm-hmm. by literally stealing herself from from the Washingtons. She's literally <laughs> breaking the law by stealing her own body, by running wow. off. And, and wow. she's doing this at a moment where there is no underground railroad. This is the 18th right. century, right? So right. what becomes kind of loosely established as as you know, a safe haven of barns and buildings and people who knew to help fugitives. That that really wasn't in play when Ona ran off. Right. She did this. She did this kind of on her own, um, under her her own steam. Of course, she had the help of free black Philadelphians. She never names mm-hmm. who. Mm-hmm. Um, but you know, she finds a way to New England. Mm-hmm. And um, she would spend, really, the Washingtons would spend the rest of their lives um, pursuing her, this kind of relentless mm-hmm. pursuit of trying to, to capture her. Now, I'm not, you all know, you know, the book's called Never Caught, but I'm not going to tell folks, you know, how she managed to avoid um, <laughs> the Washingtons, because, you know, I'm trying to books, too. But, there you go, um, there you go. <laughs> the Washingtons, <laughs> you know, I think one thing that's important to remember is that, George Washington literally um, pursued her up until mm-hmm. his death. Right. And that's something important to think about. He did so as a um, as the president by using mm-hmm. federal officials, such as customs collectors and wow. the secretary of the treasurer, everybody he could get to help um, basically go on slave-catching expeditions. Right. And, and is that as well is that, as, his, as his family? Okay. And is that was that normal back then, or is, was this type of pursuit on Ona some type of um, exception that was seen in history? Well, no. It was it was typical for mm-hmm. those who owned enslaved people to go after their human property. I think mm-hmm. though, what's exceptional is that we're talking about the first president of the United States, who at the time of Ona's departure 
Mm -hmm. Um, There are over 300 enslaved people back at Mount Vernon. And so you you have to ask the question, what was it about Ona that made um, someone who was really thinking about his legacy at that point, Mm -hmm. um, why, what would pursue them, uh, what would make George and Martha Washington want to pursue Ona to the extent at which they they did? Um, Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And, you know, what did Ona know? Who was she? Why was she so important to them? When um, there are, you know, other people now. Of course, this is also about money and about property, um, but it's also about a southern sensibility and about the ability to to control one's human property. Um, right. That's also at play. Right. And you said something really interesting that has stuck with me is that Ona stole her own body um, in order to gain her freedom, and that's just such a complicated thought of your own body is not yours. Um, I mean, I see that right now with the conversations that we're having about our healthcare choices with our body as women um, and how even those choices can be against the law. But uh, having to steal herself uh, for her own freedom sounds like, I mean, it sounds like something that many people wouldn't have the courage to, to do or to think about right now. And it also, to me, it it sounds like that same type of courage that you as yourself as a historian and writer took on when writing her story, when people were saying, you know, there's not enough in the archives or, you know, um, it's going to be hard to tell that story. But it's these, these missions that black women come up against and these barriers that we somehow end up achieving and people still are ready to hear that story and hear that process. And I'm so I'm so excited that you were able to really keep the title Never Caught because it is important to see that that mm-hmm. that story, that representation right there and to get the curiosity of how did she do that? Mm-hmm. What was yeah. her mind frame? What was the, what was the pursuit of that? Yeah. Yeah, I think that um you know, a couple things. One, even on the 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 sort of cover of the the book um, the cover of the book has um, uh, this was like sort of tricky for me, sort of thinking about how black women's bodies, especially someone like Anona Judge, is going to be represented when we have no images of her. We don't have an illustration. We don't have, okay. um, of course, it's before the real era of photography. Um, so how do we portray her on the cover of a book? when we don't know what she act, We know through descriptions what she looked like, but we right. don't have an image of her. And also, how do we have images of George and Martha Washington included in a way that, once again, make them not central subjects or these centered subjects, but peripheral. And so I really I have to give a shout-out to um, the, the art team at Simon & Schuster because um, I made it clear that, it was important. The representation of of this was important. And so what they did was um, they sort of placed a, her body. You know, you see her hands. You don't see her face. I wasn't comfortable fabricating her face for an adult nonfiction book. I, I didn't want to do that. But right. her body is centered. And you right. see her kind of holding her her apron up. She's kind of grasping at her apron as if she's about to move her feet or, or run. 
And the Washingtons are placed kind of a little bit lower, almost near where pockets would be. And that is sort of also purposely done because oftentimes when slaveholders were angry with um, uh, or wanted to threaten their human property, they would make statements like, statements like if, you know, I, I'm going to put you in my pocket, meaning I'm going to sell you. And wow. that, of course, was threatening. And here we have the Washingtons, you know, they're almost in her pocket, right? Like she's right. she's actually taking herself out of their pockets um, by right. running away and literally taking away value from their estate by wow. the removal of her body. And, mm-hmm. um, you know, and so it was important for me to to have the, the visual represent the story, but also the way that I made the decision to write this book was very different from the way I wrote A Fragile Freedom, my first book. And I did take um, some risk in that, you know, as a historian, we are trained to write in certain ways and... Um, I made the decision that Ona's story was really important and that thinking about this as a way to refashion early United States history, that I wanted it to be read by everyone. And I needed to write it in a way that would allow everyone to read it. It kind of my attempt at upholding um, the belief in the democratization of education, that it shouldn't just be this uber-educated who can learn or have access to stories like Ona's and to know Mm -hmm. this kind of history. And so I made the decision to write it in a way that actually is more comfortable for me as a writer, but to Mm -hmm. write it in a way that was engaging and that sometimes used speculation. And I was very clear when um, I was speculating, but that speculation was always based upon my work as a historian and what I had seen Mm. in the cases of other enslaved women's lives. And so when I made that decision, I knew right off the bat that um, this might not be something that uh, was well-received by my scholar friends, by my peers, Mm. Um, but it was more important for me to tell a compelling story that I felt could cross genre, that could cross from academic audiences to a general audience, and that I I didn't want to believe that it couldn't be done. Because, of course, I had been told it couldn't be done, and once again, (laughs) that's an incentive for me. And so I made the decision um, to, to do that. And I've just been just so honored and pleasantly surprised, but, um, really optimistic that it's it's been well received in in both worlds right right well it it is absolutely well received and has crossed over into this advocacy media platform and really just caught our attention because we have been following the virginia women's monument here in richmond and it's honoring 12 women individual statues on the capitol grounds it will be the first monument dedicated to women on state grounds in the nation. Uh, And this past October in 2018, also the 400th year since the first Africans were trafficked to the shores of Virginia, there was uh, much celebration about this particular monument that is coming and still in construction. They finished none of the statues of the women, and they've also included a wall of honor that has uh, about 100 or so names of other women 
but really just focusing on the women that are getting the value of their own statue, of um, being able to be seen and, and truly valued that, that a monument does when it's in your face and you have to really interact with it physically. There was um, also a lot of protesting this past October because out of the three that are still to come, Martha Washington is one of these women that has been chosen to be honored. So here in Richmond, we, we've we been fighting for just to be seen and, and to make sure the commission knows that we are challenging what narrative we are now building in our history. Um, there's conversations, even right now in our General Assembly, the legislators are working on whether or not localities have the decision and authority to remove or alter their Civil War monuments or war memorials. And I am really interested in how Ona's story will be received in this conversation as well. Um, and if it will be valued and if this is something that the city can consider. So Dr. Dunbar, I really want to make sure that um, just from this platform and from the people that listen to our show and are really thankful for the stories that they've never heard of before, but can also connect that to what's happening today. We just really thank you for your work and for this um, uncovering of stories. Here in the South and Virginia, centering Black stories and centering Black bodies that also present as femme has been something that I've seen a struggle with as we talk about equality and reconciliation in our stories. And I'm really hopeful that more writers like you and historians like you will be amplified in telling our, our history for people. Um, and I, I'm interested to see how you feel like Ona's story has been received. You said that it's been able to move the needle a little bit, but um, yeah, how has the story been received throughout the public? Yeah, it's it, um, in ways that um, most historians never imagine will happen. You know, we're, mm. you know, ultimately I'm I'm a nerd and I'm <laughs> like really comfortable with that. Um, and you know, you never sit down and write a book. Or I, I'll rephrase: most people, most historians, don't sit down, uh, work for a, a long time on a project, and think that it's going to have a large, um, make a large splash or or be talked about. We're kind of just we're trained to do the work that matters to us, no matter what. Mm-hmm. And so, you know, I had no idea that it would never caught would be a book that um, would eventually be nominated for a National Book Award. I mean, one, <laughs> congratulations! Thank you. I mean, that it still sounds weird to say it because, um, <laughs> you know, once again, as an academic, we don't necessarily think about those kinds of things, but. Mm-hmm. Um, to have that kind of recognition and then also to have the scholarly recognition with, you know, academic awards that, that matter to me. But I will say, I think one of the, one of the um, outcomes that I've been most um, delighted with was that I made the decision to adapt Never Caught Mm -hmm. and to adapt it for younger readers. Mm. And so in, um, uh, January of 2019, mm-hmm. the middle grade version of Never Caught was published. And wow. 
that is a book. And, I, you know, I had very um, strong feelings about, listen, this is a story that can help us understand American history very differently, but what does it mean to write it for an adult audience? And it's not enough for people to come to this later on in life when they're adults or young, you know, young adults that this is something that needs to be made available for teachers and for young readers. Um, right. And so I teamed up with a, a, a good friend who is also who writes for children, um, mm-hmm. Kathy Van Cleef. <laughs> and we, because one of the things I recognized immediately was, like, oh, I'm not a write for kids. Like, I've never done this <laughs> before. And I want to do it in a way that um, will help them engage this book in a way that um, adult readers were engaging with the with the adult version. And so wow. um, the middle grade version came out in 2019. And so every time a teacher has to teach to social study standards, and they mm-hmm. have to teach about the founding fathers, there's no reason that they can't include the story of Ona Judge. Uh, and I, I did that for teachers, for students, that as an historian, as a scholar, I have to create tools for teachers and educators to help refashion, to correct the narrative. And so that's, you know, having young people, having sixth and seventh graders and fifth graders write to me and tell me that they love the story of Ona and send me photos of themselves dressed up as Ona for Halloween. Like those are the, that's where I say, I know the needle has been moved. And if it hasn't, if it moves one person or 10 children or an entire social studies curriculum, then I feel like, you know, I've I've made a contribution. And ultimately, as a scholar, as a writer, that's what matters most to me. Wow. You know, creating access for information is, is, is how we change history and public memory. And having that thought to translate it to young people is, well, to be real honest, it's what black women do. <laughs> um, <laughs> to even be able to frame it that way and understand the importance of that, you know, that's, that's the work of the nurturing heart as well as just the superhero um, endurance. Of, of black women out here. And I am so grateful that you took the time to have this conversation today. I cannot wait to get my hands on the middle grade version um, and and give that to so many of our teachers here, especially as we approach Black History Month. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and folks are always looking for new stories to tell. Um, how can people continue to support you and find you and make sure that they're following the great work that you're going to continue to do? Oh, well, first let me just thank you for having me on and um, for having this great conversation with me. It's always um, it's just always such an honor and a pleasure to be able to talk about my work and. Um, if people want to, you know, sort of follow around, follow me along um, this journey of writing and uncovering stories, they can um, jump onto my website at ericaarmstrongdunbar.com. Um, they can find me on Twitter and um, at Erica A. Dunbar. And, um, you know, I'm around and look for me on, on the radio, on television. And also, <laughs> you know, I just... Um, I just think it's so important. This is 
this is the kind of work that I do. I'm I'm fortunate to do it, but it's it's more than that. It's it's my calling, and I just feel super grateful that I found it, that I have the ability, I've been given the opportunity to do it, but it's also an obligation. And once you encounter the lives of someone like an Ona Judge in the archives, I'm obligated as a historian to share that and to help um, to say her name and to make people know who she was uh, and the contributions that people like she and Harriet Tubman and others made to, to our nation. Wow, wow. Um, I don't know if you can share publicly or if, if you know what's next, but is there something <laughs> on the horizon that you're working on? There's always something about? on the horizon. <laughs> There's always. Uh, you sound like my editor. Um, I, yeah, Give us well, more. <laughs> what I'll say is that um, this may be of, of interest. The, the next project is a Civil War project. Um, and it's a Civil War project, um, much of which is based in Richmond. And um, I don't want to give too much away at this point. However, what I will say, <laughs> what I will say, is that um, I'm interested in telling a different story about the Civil War, and I want to once again center the lives of Black women in at kind of ground zero and the the you know, capital of the Confederacy and the ways that black women um, changed the course of the war. And so that's all, that's all you'll get out of me at this point. Well, right now I am, I'm, believe me, everyone that's listening to this, you will absolutely be hearing more from Dr. Dunbar because I can't wait to cover whatever you are doing. That <laughs> You are right in my lane. I don't know if you did this on purpose to set us up to have this exciting end, but truly um, uh, the, the work and that, that story here will fit right into what we are really trying to push out. Um, myself, I know I'm really excited. I was, I'm truly honored to be on the Honor 14 board, which is um, a committee of people who are now working to build a monument to the U.S. Colored Troops on Monument Avenue in Richmond. And so I am digging now into stories from the Civil War and and also looking at battles and and trying to understand what's the most important um, stories and narratives to, to get people interested in this story. But I will tell you what, that if, if we can amplify more from black women from that time period and, and have a larger conversation, Dr. Dunbar, you are right on time. Um, <laughs> I, just, I really appreciate you, and um, I can't wait to keep in contact. Please, if there's anything that we here um, in Richmond can do for it here at Race Capital, we would love to continue to support you. And, again, I just I just really thank you for existing and being so brave to realize that this is an obligation and for sharing this gift with us. Well, thank you. And thank you for the work that you, you do that, you know, this kind of platform and reaching the, the people that you reach, it's, it's important and it's um, sometimes thankless and thankless work. But um, <laughs> thank you for, because you're of part of this, um, you're part of this movement, right? And it's a movement <laughs> that's as, as old as as the nation so thank yeah. you for um for your work and it's really it's an honor to, to to talk with you thank you thank you uh dr erica armstrong dunbar we'll talk soon 
Take care. As a black woman who is committed to sharing stories in order to push the narrative work of her political landscape of today, interviews with people like Dr. Dunbar are what keep me going. It's how I feed my own survival as I attempt to inform people in Richmond and the Commonwealth of Virginia of our current behavior, mimicking very much the same history we're trying to say we should be even ashamed of. The Women's Monument Commission has chosen Martha Washington as deserving as a Maggie L. Walker to be standing on the Capitol grounds of Virginia. What does that say about our values of today? How are we centering black women bodies in 2020? A hundred years after white women gained the right to vote, what is Virginia actually telling us by building public memory to the same women that dedicated their lives to our oppression? After the interview with Dr. Dunbar, I also wonder how here in the black community, how are we defining freedom and justice of today? Dr. Dunbar did the work of looking through newspapers and reading about what was happening in that time of Ona Judge just to see how did black people define freedom and liberation then? I have that same question of today. What does it look like for us to say we're on the right path? I can't imagine that building monuments to women like Martha Washington and Dr. Sally Tompkins are really demonstrating that we've learned from our history, that we've reconciled our stories. Are we as black women still having to steal our own bodies out of the workplace when we're the token in the office? Are we still having to steal our own bodies when we're the only voice in the political rooms that's saying, believe us? How are we having our voices amplified when our bodies are still not valued? And can we center a black body in our history while we are still building to white supremacy? I wanna thank the black women historians that continue to feed us like Dr. Erica Dunbar. I couldn't ever do an episode without saying the name of Christy Coleman of the Civil War Museum, who's off to her next journey in Yorktown. We have to say their names, say her name, Ona Judge, and find how Ona's story fits in to our battles as well as our triumphs. This year, Race Capital is focused on doing the work of continuing the stories of Black women of black Richmonders, of black Virginians. And with that hard work, we're gonna make sure we do a little self-care as well. That doesn't mean we're going anywhere, but it does mean that instead of weekly coming through your airwaves, we're gonna cut back to every other week. 
But Kat and I aren't going anywhere. So make sure you hit us up on all social media at Race Capital. That's Race Capital at R-A-C-E-C-A-P-I-T-O-L, capital as in the Capitol building. And let us know what other stories you want to hear. And just so you know, Race Capital is on Patreon. And we'll keep doing what we do, interrogating racial narratives here in the former capital of the Confederacy. We'll catch you next time. I'm from the R.